Hello, people of the way. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And uh, and just in continuation, you know, it's so cool how we see like what happens in the church, how the church is growing. But, you know, it's not without opposition. Not without opposition at all. And you start to see how, you know, the, how not only how the Lord works, but you start to see a picture of the church, like a different church than what you see today. And I love it so much because they're hardcore. Hardcore. Even in the face of death. Now, look what happens here in chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, Herod the king, remember, Herod is like a political family. The, the last name Herod, you know, it's a political family. It's kind of like, um, uh, like the Bushes, you know, the Bushes. You have like, you know, George Bush Sr., George Bush, you know, W., and then you have like, you know, a couple bushes that are like, you know, they're still in politics. Like, I don't know, they do. I forgot the guy's name, the son, I forgot his name or the grandson, I guess. But it's like the bushes, you know, or like the Clintons, you know, you have, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, the former president, former governor of Arkansas. Then you have good old Hillary, you know, and good old Hillary. And she's like the uh, she was the, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, senator from New York. You know, and then ran for president, you know, and, you know, who's no, who knows what her political future is going to look like. But it's like, you know, a political family. That's how Herod is. So there's, you know, there don't, there's, you know, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas it was, it is the one who killed John the Baptist, who had his head chopped off. You know, because remember, he had this, you know, his daughter, his daughter-in-law, who, you know, did a seductive dance. You know, and then he says, I'll give you whatever you want. She does her dance and comes to him and says, I want the head of John the Baptist. You know, and so what did he do? He had the, his John the Baptist head chopped off. You know, nothing new under the sun. You know, men are under these this stupid satanic seduction. You know, a little side note to that is that, you know, if if you know, read for all the for all the young people, you know, read. Psalm, chapter uh, Proverb, chapter seven. Proverbs chapter seven. Very important to read these things about wisdom. Wisdom. Proverbs chapter seven. Read it. Every single male. Read Proverbs chapter seven. If you're female, read it. You know, if you're, you know, if you have little ones. Read it to your children. Read it to your young males. Read it to your young boys. Read it to your young daughters. It's very important because these young boys, they grow up and, you know, they go to public school. You know, I was reading the other day how there was an eight-year-old boy who nothing, you know, this girl asked him, you know, like, hey, you know, let's, let's hook up. I'll do this to you. You know, he had no idea what she was talking about. He came home. And says, Dad, you know, this girl says, I'll do this to you. And he was like, whoa, like, where did you hear that? Like, very adult type stuff. And I don't mean adult. I mean, like, adult, like sexual adult type stuff. It's so, the, these things, it's getting younger and younger. I thought it was bad when I was in high school. But now it's worse for high schoolers. 
But then you think about the junior high kids, you think about the younger age, you think about kindergartner. Now they want to do kindergarten. In some states, they're passing these laws. Sex ed starts in kindergarten. What about these little boys? You know, yeah, you have these hormones and all these things, but you know what? Give your hormones to the Lord. You say, man, that sounds crazy. What are you talking about? I know it sounds crazy. But give your hormones to the Lord. And you know what the Lord will do? Anytime He takes something away, He'll give you something back. You know what the Holy Spirit gives you? Self-control. Self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And so this, not to get sidetracked, but that's Herod Antipas. He killed John the Baptist because he had a whorish daughter and did a seductive dance. He says, oh yeah, I'll give you whatever you want. You see guys like that today. You know, a female bats her eyes and the guy's ready to do whatever. Stupid. You train up your little ones, train up your little boys to be wise. Because you think it's bad now? It's going to be a million times worse in five years, ten years. It's going to be way worse. Train them up. Because this world is gross. And it's only going to get worse. So Herod Antipas, you know, he had, he had uh, John the Baptist beheaded. He's also the one who sent Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. And then he was the son of Herod the Great. Remember the Herod, it's like a political dynasty. And then you have Herod Agrippa the first, And some major Christian persecution started under Herod Antipas. There was already Christian persecution, persecution of the church, but it, it, it took a... A heavy, uh, heavy turn under Herod Agrippa. You know, he was the grandson of Herod the Great. You know, what a family legacy. You know, and I say that, you know, sarcastically. What a family legacy. You know, look at what they did to Jesus. As a family. What they did to John the Baptist. You know, what they did to uh, Jesus and mocking him and then sending him back to Pontius, and then the next Herod, Herod Agrippa I, you know, this major persecution. What a family legacy. You know, speaking of family legacies, you know, let your legacy, let your legacy be Jesus Christ, your family legacy. Passing on Jesus Christ to the next generation. No matter what, even if people think you're stupid, who cares? You know, who cares? People say, oh, you're so stupid, you're such a legalist, you're this, you're that. Who cares? Let them talk. That's all it is. Let them talk. Look at their lives. You know, it's kind of interesting. You know, people say, oh, yeah, I don't like how you say this. I don't like how you say this. You know, it's there's no, they, they say all these things. But that's all it is. It's just words. That's all it is. Then you look at their life. Not as a judgmental kind of thing, but look at the fruit. Jesus Christ says, look at the fruit. You look at the fruit of their lives. Look at their home, what their home is like. It's like, man, I don't want my kids to be subject to this. So I'm going to train my kids to be like hardcore fighters, warriors in the next generation. You know, they're going to be handling some serious business. And the time for training starts now, you know. Let it be today. And if you're a parent and it's like, man, I've never taught my kids this. I've never taught my kids this. You know what's so cool about yesterday? It's yesterday. You know what's so cool about today, right here and now? Is that tomorrow, it's yesterday. It's officially yesterday. So start right now. 
start right now because the culture that these kids are growing up in, it's nasty. There is sex on every corner. There is drugs on every corner. There is like Satan on every corner. Just train them well. Train them well in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not as a, you know, an arduous task, but a labor of love. You know, presenting your children to Jesus Christ one day. So look what happens here in verse 1. Now about that, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass. Translates as to bring harm. To harass some of the church, some from the church. You know, it's so crazy because what happens here, it's it breaks my heart. This is like a for me, chapter 12 is like an emotional roller coaster. Emotional roller coaster. Because you know, harm that comes to the church, I hate it. I have to be careful because I have a carnal nature where it's like, okay, you want to come against my loved ones? I'm gonna kill you. Whereas, okay, I can't do that, Lord. You know, I can't, you know, help me, Lord. And it's such a trip because it's like, look what's happening to the church here. But, you know, that's why I say, you know, when we get to the end of this, you're going to be like, man, that was such a roller coaster. So look what happens in verse 2. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So you have a casualty in the church. Do you remember our study in Matthew 4? Matthew chapter 4. There were the sons of Zebedee. You know, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And they left the boat of their dad. And they left the family. And they followed Jesus Christ. They said, you know what? I'm going to follow the Lord. They denied it all. You know, they were working with their dad. Family business. Fishermen. Jesus Christ says, hey, follow me. They says, okay. They put down their nets. So I'm going to go follow Jesus. It's like, wow, such a beautiful passage. But think about how hardcore that is. To deny everything for Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's hardcore. And I love the hardcore. It's like, man, it's so cool when you see these hardcore people like this. Men, women, young, old. Old Testament, New Testament. I love it so much. Because it's like motivation. It's like, you know, you see these, you know, little softball people. It's like, man, I don't, that's, that's not a figure I can look up to. I don't want to emulate that. I don't want to emulate a baby that's being tossed to and fro by, very, by, you know, by, by all kinds of doctrine. But then you see this guy, you see this gal, they're hardcore. It's like, wow, I want to be like that. You know, such is the case with James and John. But it doesn't come, it comes with, not, not without a cost. Not without a cost. You know what's so cool? You get to like later chapters in the book of Matthew. And see, you see family restoration, family restoration, because the mom, the, the, the mom of James and John has a little conversation with Jesus Christ and says, oh, you know, let my sons be at your side in your kingdom. You know, it's so beautiful. You see the family restoration. The mom came to Christ. But yet here, it's not without a cost. James. Baby James, her son, killed. See, remember a couple chapters ago, the cost of being a Christian, it started to get higher, you know, hotter and hotter. Like the little knob was turned. You see the flame get hotter. You see persecution on the rise. That's what's so cool about the book of Acts. Not the persecution, 
but you see the church response in the face of persecution. Not just the church's response, but you see God's response in the face of persecution. That's what I love so much about the book of Acts. You start to wonder, wow, this is a different church than what I see going, you know, around the street corner. It's a totally different church. And so look what happens here. So James is killed in verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews. He's typical Herod Antipas, you know, Agrippa. Typical politician. Typical politician, a man pleaser. You know, oh yeah, it's pleasing to the Jews. They like it. They're applauding. They're hooting. They're hollering. Okay. Look at verse 3. He proceeded further to seize Peter also. You see, typical politician. You see politicians, you know, when they're campaigning, they say this, they say that, they promise you everything, they get into office, and they realize they're, you know, then they get into the uh, uh, the lobbyists, and the ones who, have, you know, have the purse strings, they, 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 they nug with the, you know, they dangle dollars, and all of a sudden these politicians start to change their mind, they change their opinion. Because what are the masses saying? You know, it's like it's nothing new under the sun. Same thing's happening here with Herod. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, the days of unleavened bread are the seven, year, seven days after uh, uh, the Passover meal. So, it's like the Passover, it's like a time period, like a week time period. You know, and so this is around 42 to 44 A.D., about 10 to 12 years after the, uh, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, kind of put, think, give you a little idea of the timeline. Remember, the book of Acts is a long book, a long, long book. It was written by Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke, written by Dr. Luke. And it was kind of like an accounting, a historical accounting from, you know, he was an old man when he wrote it. And he was like reflecting back and started to chronicle, you know, uh, 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 chronicle everything, all the events. And so the book of Acts is a long, long, long book. Decades long. And so look what happens here. It says, now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So, in verse 4, when he arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads. Now here the squad is four. It, it, one squad is four and there are four squads. So four times four is 16. So the group of guys, 16 guards. He says, and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him. Now this word keep, you know, of course here it's a military term being used in military context. You know, it's, you know, it's, but it, it's the same with us. You know, you see Paul use these military terms. It's to be on guard, to stand guard. And be awake, don't fall asleep, to be on guard and stand firm. It's the same word here. I love it so much, these military terms that Paul uses. Peter uses them too. It's like, man, you know, be hardcore. Don't be wishy-washy. Be hardcore for Jesus Christ. And it says, you see these four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So the plan was to kill Peter after the Passover week. And so remember that Peter expected death. Peter was, he, he wasn't, you know, just kind of like, you know, going around, you know, willy-nilly. 
and going door to door and preaching the good news. He was preaching the good news. But he had the expectation of death because Jesus Christ told him, read John chapter 21, verse 18 and 19, and you'll see he expected death. You know what I love so much about Peter? He didn't, he didn't, he didn't bow out. He didn't say, what? You know, Lord, I'll follow you. And then the Lord tells him, oh, by the way, you're going to die. Okay, I'm out. Never mind. He didn't say that. He remained obedient even when he knew that death was imminent. That's what I mean when I say follow these hardcore guys. I love it so much. Not the wishy-washies. You know, you see these guys on TV. You know, you listen to this guy, listen to this guy, listen to... It's like, man, you know, I mean, if they're hardcore, praise be to the Lord. But if they're wishy-washies, you know, if they themselves run milk, why are you going to follow those guys? You know, follow the, you know, you read the Bible and it's like, wow, I want to be hardcore like Peter. You know, I want to be hardcore like Hannah. The Old Testament. I want to be hardcore like little Samuel. All these people in the Bible, wow, these are my heroes. And you see Peter, I wonder in Peter's mind, if in the back of his mind, he's, you know, he's arrested and, you know, James was just killed. Brother James was just killed. And I wonder if he's thinking, man, my time is up. He's going to kill me. And if he's thinking, this is what the Lord told me. This is what the Lord told me. Is this it? Is, is, is this my, is this what I'm going to go? And I love, it. you don't see any, there's no indication of Peter resisting no resistance. So look what happens here now. In verse 5, Peter was therefore kept, kept its under watch. He's prevented from escape. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. This just blows me away so much. Constant prayer. It's Earnest prayer without ceasing. That's how it translates. Earnest prayer without ceasing. That's what was happening inside the church. Now, the churches in these days, they were just like home fellowships. You know, somebody have a big house, have a big, you know, all these people at the house. Somebody have a little house, you know, still a lot of people crammed in there. Listening to who, Peter, in some cases, Peter. In some cases, you know, James, John, but James is now dead. But all these home fellowships all over the place. And it's so cool what's happening here. It says that constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Ecclesia is how it translates. Ecclesia. You have brothers and sisters, young and old, earnestly praying without ceasing. Without ceasing. Now, a little comment I have about this, about prayer, uh, 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 praying and church prayer. You know, there's you hear the word vigil a lot, you know, and I'm not talking about what you, like you see a vigil. Somebody gets in a car accident and you see like people hold their candles and they're having a vigil. I'm not talking about that. But it comes from the Latin vigilia. And what it means, it's like hardcore prayer. It's to stay awake. Is what that word means, to stay awake. To stay awake. It's not just to stay awake and watch TV. It's to stay awake and be in prayer. 
I think this is something that we have to get used to as a church body corporately, individually, of course. But as a church body to get used to church prayer, I don't want to shame anybody at all. But you know, there were times where we would have church prayer meetings. And at first, you know, all these people would come. And then in the course of time, less people, less people, less people, less people. And finally, nobody. Nobody. And I don't say this at all. As surely as the Lord lives, it's not to shame. But in the last days, we got to change that. We got to, you know, we got to turn that around. Because in the last days, there's going to be some hardcore stuff happening. And it's the complete and total denial of self corporately as a church body. And to be in prayer without ceasing. Constant prayer being offered to God for the sake of the church, for the sake of people, for the sake of, you know, maybe our unsaved family, unsaved friends, unsaved co-workers. You know, maybe we know a pastor who's been arrested, a pastor who's about to get his head chopped off. And then all you say, like, why do you keep saying head chopped off? Well, prophetically speaking, in the last days, Christians will be beheaded. Christians will be beheaded. It's kind of interesting the days that we live in because, you know, 20 years ago, you never hear of, you know, people beheading. But now, you know, with the rise of, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, you know, or ISIL, you know, if you acknowledge the Levant, which biblically I don't because Israel belongs to uh, Israel, the Jews. You say, oh, no, Israel doesn't belong to the Jews. Well, Abraham has the title. Don't forget, Abraham has the title, the title deed to the land. But what about prayer? It's not to shame the church body. It's to say, hey, let's flip this around. There might be times where it's like, hey, you know, let's meet. I don't know what this, you know, the aftermath of this virus is going to be like. I don't like what I'm seeing. Because you're seeing, you know, not church, you're seeing uh, uh, global unity. It's on the rise. People are saying, yeah, we're all in this together. You know, we're doing all this. We're going to get through this. And in the aftermath of this, you're starting to see like the world unite. Countries uniting. You say like, are you against unity? No, I'm not against unity at all. But the Bible warns in the last days, there's going to be a different kind of global unity. And there's going to be a different kind of global leader. And if this global leader, you know, there's certain things, certain signposts of the last days. And there's going to be peace, but it's a false peace. It's a fake peace. And so when the world comes together, what's what's really cooking? It's very sensitive days that we live in. The Bible teaches that the Jews are going to come under persecution by this Antichrist. And then the Lord is going to protect the Jews. And then the Antichrist is going to come against the Christians. And there's going to be a slaughter of Christians across the globe. And when you read the prophecies, that's where you see Christians being beheaded. Beheaded. So I'm not just saying, yeah, you get your head chopped off. I'm not saying that like, oh, you know. 
Why, what's his, you know, uh, fancification with heads and beheading? Well, it's the Bible. The Bible teaches us these things. It's to be wise in the last days. And so in your individual prayer life, start ticking it up a little bit. That's not an order. You know, I don't say, you know, by, you know, hey, I compel you to do this. I'm forcing you to do this. But it's a hardcore suggestion. Hardcore. Hardcore, hardcore suggestion to pray. You know, and if you have little children, hold their hands and pray with them. They start to squirm. Oh, I'm tired. I'm tired. Well, you know, maybe stop. And then the next day, you know, three minutes longer, they squirm. And the next day, three minutes longer, the next day. And then finally, you know, they're prayer warriors. They want to pray for five hours without ceasing. Very important in these days that we live in. Very sensitive, sensitive, sensitive days. I can't stress that enough. It's almost like we're right at the precipice of something big. And when I say something big, I mean like the seven-year time clock. So teach your kids. You yourself be a prayer warrior. You know, and teach your kids be a prayer warrior. Look what's happening here, this intercession of the church. You know, all these times you see the, you know, the, the intercession of an individual. The intercession of Paul, the intercession of Peter, the intercession of Moses, the intercession of, you know, Samuel, all these people. But here you have the intercession of the church constantly praying. And so, you know, it was as a church body, not individually. You know, individually you have like prayer warriors. But it's to say, hey, corporately, what's really going on? Seeking the Lord as a church body, uh, as the ecclesia. In verse 6, look what's happening here. And when Herod was about to, about to bring him out, remember it's the end of Passover. Herod was about to bring him out. That night, Peter was sleeping. So he's sound asleep. Meanwhile, the church is praying and it's nighttime. I love this so much. You know, they're just saying, you know, nighttime's the right time. I never heard that saying. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, like, that's when, you, when you're on the attack, when you're on the offense or offense and you go on attack, you know, the bad guys, the enemy, they're, they're wide awake during the day, but they get tired at night. We used to have a saying, you know, nighttime's the right time. That's when you go and you make your movements. That's when you go and make your advance. That's when you go out and attack. You know, nighttime's the right time. I love this so much. This is so hardcore. It says, That night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. You know, I wonder, you know, based on John 21, verse 19, I wonder if Peter was expecting death. I wonder if he was like, you know what, this is it. You know, I'm content. You know, I did my, you know, I was obedient to the Lord. I, I, I followed the Lord. I was obedient to the best of my ability. I was obedient to Him. You know, and you know, this is it. I mean, read read verse 6. You know, I mean, He's bound with two chains. And then, you know, bound with two, between two soldiers. And then read John 21, 19. You'll get what I'm saying. I wonder if Peter was like, okay, this is it. I've accepted my fate. Now, forgive me, Lord. I shouldn't say I've accepted my fate. I don't believe in fate. 
But you know, Lord, is this what you were telling me about? Or, you know, maybe that is the case and the Lord was tarrying. Maybe he tarried a little bit. I don't know. But, you know, sometimes my mind wonders these things and I ponder these things based on, you know, previous verses, previous chapters, previous books. So it's nighttime. Peter was sleeping. Don't forget. Meanwhile, the church is praying. Bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards, two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Don't forget, there's a total of 16, you know, four and four, squad of four and four guys, uh, four, uh, four squats. So there's a total of 16. In verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him. I, this is so beautiful, so powerful. So Peter is all alone. Put that in air quotes. Peter alone. He's captive. He's chained up. But you know what? You open the eyes of faith, and he's not really alone. He's not really alone. Because the angel of the Lord is standing right next to him. You see how beautiful this is? Look at verse 7. It says, And a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side. This is kind of cool. It is struck here. It's patasso in the Greek. Patasso. It means to knock gently or fatally. <laughs> it's like, that's a pretty big difference. Patasso. It's like, you know, you could like a little tap, tap, tap on the shoulder. Patasso. Or like straight up, man, I'm going to knock you out, patasso, fatally. You know, so it's a big difference of one word. But I think it's so beautiful. A little tap, tap, hey, Peter. It says, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up. Translates as to, uh, to rouse and waken. Rouse and waken. Like, hey, Peter. Kind of tap on the shoulder, Peter. Struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly! Exclamation point. And his chains fell off his hands. You know what I love about this so much? Is you straight up, you get like, like a first-hand account of what is happening here. And all of these people today, they say, Oh yeah, the Holy Spirit doesn't move today like he did. That was for 2,000 years ago. What you read in the book of Acts, that was for 2,000 years ago. You know what I say? Complete and total rubbish. Rubbish poppycock. That's garbage. Don't accept that. Me personally, I, I don't like it when people say that. When people say, oh yeah, that was for 2,000 years ago. In fact, it's not just I don't like it. I'll go a little bit further. I hate it. I hate it. I can't stand it. In fact, I'll go a little bit further still. I call it criminal when people say that. That was for 2,000 years ago. I say that's criminal. You know why? Because it destroys faith. You talk to a little five-year-old. You read this passage to them, to a little eight-year-old. Man, their eyes are going to be wide as saucers. Like, whoa, this is so cool. Hey, Pops, this is so cool. You know, Mom, this is so cool. And you take that little eight-year-old kid, and the kid becomes 10. The kid becomes 12. The kid becomes 15. And their faith is like just blowing up. 
And then when they become like a more quote unquote mature age where they can start to understand more adult things in a in a, a adult like application, no longer a childlike application. They start to hear you say, oh, by the way, that was 2000 years ago. It's not for today. That's why I call it criminal. Criminal. And you know what it also does? It doesn't only destroy faith, but it breeds religion. It breeds religion over relationship. Nowhere in the book of Acts, nowhere in the Bible, will you see an expiration date on the work of the Holy Spirit. Nowhere. I don't get where these people get off by saying that was for 2,000 years ago. That was for that dispensation. It's not for today. Well, I get it. I get where they're coming from. But they're wrong. They themselves are being tossed to and fro by all kinds of wind of doctrine. Following the teaching of man. What does the Bible have to say? And look what happens here. In verse 8. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself. It's like to fasten. You know, like when you take a nap, you know, and you kind of like undo your belt a little bit, you know, like like you go out in the world, you know, you're out in public and you tighten your belt, make sure, you, you know, your pants are on your waist, you know, and then, but you get home and you like maybe go down a couple notches, you know, or like you go out to a restaurant, you're going to eat and you like undo a couple notches, just loosen up, go get some comfort. Or, you know, maybe you sit down on your couch, you're going to take a nap and you just like undo the belt completely so you can breathe. And I love this so much. The angel saying, hey, fasten your belt, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. He's straight up saying, hey, Peter, it's time to go. And so he did, it says. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. It's so powerful what's happening here. You see, you see why I have such a beef with these people that say, oh, that was for 2,000 years ago. It's not for today. It destroys faith. Tell that to a child. Tell that to a 10-year-old who's reading. You know, a 10-year-old who can read and comprehend. And they're reading the book of Acts. It's like, whoa, this is so cool. And then for an adult to tell them, for a pastor to tell them, for a youth leader to tell them, for a pastor, for elder, whoever, to tell them, that was for a different dispensation. It's not for today. Do you know what it does to the faith of a child? It destroys it. Destroys the faith of a child. And you know, Jesus Christ has something to say about that. The destruction of the faith of a child. He has something to say about it. A hardcore message to parents. And so, look what happens here in verse 9. So he went out and followed him. And did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Isn't this cool? It's like, you know, it says something about Peter's visions, how palpable they were, so much so that he couldn't tell the difference. He didn't know that this was really happening. He didn't know that it was real. He just thought like, okay, this, like, I'm just seeing a vision. Says something a lot about Peter's relationship with the Lord. 
how the Lord would speak to him and show him these things. And that's what's so beautiful about intimacy with Jesus Christ. Intimacy with him. Oneness with him. In his word. You know, you pray. You talk to Jesus. You pray. You pray to the Father through Jesus Christ. And you pray and you know, you make your prayers and supplication known. And then you say amen. You know, me personally, I hate saying amen. Because, you know, when I pray, I have my eyes closed. But then I say amen, and I got to open my eyes, and I realize, man, I'm still here. That's why I hate saying amen. I can't wait. I hope when I die, it's like either sudden, but, you know, if it's imminent, like, you know, okay, my head's going to get chopped off. I'm just going to close my eyes and pray and rejoice because I'm never going to have to say amen again. I'll just be in the middle of prayer and then plop. You know, oh, man, I can't wait. And so look what happens here. He thought he was seeing a vision straight up in verse 10. When they were past the first and second guard posts. You know, remember, a total of 16 men. A total of 16 men that Peter had to pass through. And Peter was unarmed. It's not like, you know, he's going past, you know, one guy, kill one guy. You know, walk past another guy, kill him. Another guy, stab him. Another guy, you know, do all these things. It's not like tactical, like military type stuff or tactical in terms like, you know, movement and, you know, concealment. It's not anything like that. He's unarmed. And so he's passing by, you know, the first guard post, the second guard post. It says they came to the iron gate that leads to the city. Remember, the prison doors, basically. He's like, I mean, a couple seconds ago, he was in his jail cell. His prison cell. And now look, he's right at the door that goes, that leads to the city. And then look at verse 10, which opened to them of its own accord. They just, the doors opened all by themselves. The same way the chains fell all by themselves. You know, I have to say something here. How in the world is this, what's happening, what we're reading how is this explainable logically? You read this logically and you're like, whoa, this is crazy. This is impossible. How is this explainable intellectually? Impossible. Impossible. And then I'll ask it a third time. How is this explainable by faith. It's easily explainable by faith. You say, what do you mean? How can it be easy to explain? God is doing it. God is doing it. You see why I have such a beef with these people who say, that was for that dispensation. The Holy Spirit doesn't work like this anymore. It was for another time. It's not for today. You tell that to a child, you know, a 10-year-old reads these passages and their faith is just strong, like mighty. And then at age 15, they start to learn more, quote-unquote, adult concepts. And their pastor, their elder, books that they read, and sadly, maybe even a parent tells them, hey son, hey baby girl, 
That was for another dispensation. It's not for today. And then all of a sudden that faith is just destroyed. Destroyed. What happens when that relationship with Jesus Christ becomes religion for that 15-year-old? And I'll take it a step further. What happened when that what happens when that 15-year-old is 22 years old? 22 years old and is himself or herself in shackles spiritually speaking what happens when that 22 year old is now not only in shackles but in prison and the faith that once was in reading the word of God and seeing what God can do has now been destroyed Where is that 22-year-old shackled guy, shackled gal? Who are they going to cry out to? You see, all this time you've heard me say things like, Oh yeah, you know, that was for that dispensation. That was for 2,000 years ago. And you think like, man, he really has an axe to grind. Why is he saying it all the time? There's a reason. It destroys faith. It breeds intellect. It breeds logic. It breeds religion. I'm not saying throw those things out the door. You know, intellect is a good thing to have. Logic, these are tools that the Lord gives us. But they are excellent slaves to a person. And they are very dangerous masters. I'm speaking about faith. That's why it's not that I have an axe to grind. Maybe I do have an axe to grind. I don't know. But it's one of my biggest pet peeves. I don't even want to call it a pet peeve. It's, I can't stand it. I hate it. I hate it with a passion because it destroys faith. So the the door opens of its own accord. He says in verse 10, And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod. You know what's so cool here? It says that Peter had come to himself. Like, you know, he was out of it. He was completely and totally out of it. I don't want to get graphic in describing this, but you know, he, like, have you ever like gone to the bathroom? Like in your, you're going to sleep, you know, you're in sleep. And then you wake up, you're like, man, I got to go to the bathroom. So you get up, do your thing, and you come back, go back to bed. And you don't have to like wait to fall to sleep, fall back to sleep. It's like immediately like, you know, Bumping into a dresser, you know, stubbing your toe and doing, and you do your thing, and then you go back to bed. Your head hits the pillow, and boom, you're out. That's how Peter was, like straight up. He's like, yeah, okay, bring his belt on, tying his sandals, kind of like in a, in a stupor, like you know, half asleep, half awake. He doesn't know. Is this a vision? What's happening? Yeah, I'll follow this angel. 
It's like, oh, look, I'm passing guard number one, passing guard number two. Here's the gate. I'm out. It's like, man, Lord, what is this vision? And then, you know, they went down one street. They went down, you know, went down one street. And then immediately the angel departed from him. And that's when he, like, came to himself like a bucket of water was just poured on him. It's so cool how this happens. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain. You see Peter's certainty that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. You know what's so cool about this? You know, it's like they thought Peter's number was up. Remember the Jewish people, they hated Christians. You know, the family of Agrippa wasn't, you know, uh, they don't have a strong history with Christians, followers of Jesus. Look at John the Baptist. Look at Jesus Christ himself. Look at Brother James. And you know, it's like the Jews, they, they were like, you know, they, they liked that uh, Agrippa, Herod was coming against the Christians, the church. And so Herod was like, okay, you know, a typical politician. The people like this, so I'm going to do more. I'm going to give them more. And so look, it says, and from the expectation of the Jewish people that the Lord has delivered me from. That's what, that's what Peter says. You know, it's like sometimes in life, you're going to be tried by fire. And people... People around you, maybe even people you love, they have an expectation of your end. They have an expectation of your demise. But I'm going to tell you something about fire. It can also be your refining. People have the expectation of your end, your demise. But in the course of time, through the fire, you've been refined. You see how beautiful the Lord is? How He works? How tender He is? Even in the fire? And so look what happens here in verse 12. So, when He had considered this, He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. So this is John Mark. He, is, he wrote the Gospel of Mark. You know, we haven't really studied. Sometimes we'll look at certain passages in Mark. But eventually we're going to study in entirety the Gospel of Mark. He's the cousin of Barnabas. It's from uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. He's Barnabas's cousin. Remember, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. And this is a beautiful family in itself. You know, contrast this family with the family of Herod. You know, and they're the, the house of Mary. You know, John Mark's mom. So look what it says, where many were gathered together praying. It was a packed house. I mean, when you read it in the Greek, it's like it translates as like a, like hoarding. You look at a hoarder's house and they got stuff all over the place. Well, that's what it says with the people that they were just packed in their packed house. Don't forget, it's nighttime. You know, nighttime is the right time. You know, 22 years ago, if you heard me say nighttime is the right time, it's a night of violence. But today I say nighttime's the right time. It's still a night of violence, except we're on our knees. On our knees. 
before the Lord. That's what I mean when I say, you know, the last days, these prayer. I don't want to say vigils, but just nights of prayer where the church is going to gather. Hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting. What time? Uh, I don't know. Seven o'clock. You know, what time is it over? Seven o'clock the next day. You know what I'm saying? You know, 7 p.m. we meet, maybe have some pizza or something, get together, have a meal, you know, and just pray. I mean, this is like straight up last days kind of stuff. Like, you know, the cost of being a Christian is, can get you, you could be thrown in jail. Or, you know, say, you know, we're in an America bubble. But what about interceding for the church? Interceding for our brothers and sisters in Africa, in China, in Russia, in Arab countries. In Israel, what about praying for the Jews? Interceding for them, praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And praying, praying, praying without ceasing. And so like little kids, teach them, start to teach them, hey, let's pray. And the kids start to pray, they start to realize, they start to learn. Not learn by them doing it, but learning by, you know, example. And what the parents are doing. Oh, my dad's a prayer warrior. My mom's a prayer warrior. I want to be like that too. This is beautiful opportunity. You know, you see parents nowadays, you know, we're in these, uh, you know, stay-at-home order or whatever. You know, like quarantined. And the kid, the parents, just, they don't want to teach their, they don't want to do homeschool. So they just say, yeah, go play outside. And you get these kids running around all over the place. And, you know, I'm not saying, you know, like, don't let your kids play. I mean, let your kids play. But I meant, like, you know, all this time to teach. Hey, let's pray. So cool. And so look what happens here. You know, they're at Mary's house. Mary's the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. You know, this is John Mark. You know, we're going to study more about this, you know, John Mark. You know, it's so beautiful. Even... A little drama, but it's still beautiful. In the grand scheme of things, it's beautiful. little drama. It says, where many were gathered together, praying, packed house. It's the nighttime. Everyone is sleeping, sound asleep. The whole town. Sound. I mean, you look at a, a, a city environment, you know, and like today. You'll still hear cars. You might hear an occasional honk. You might hear an occasional, you know, police car, you know, different, maybe a dog bark in the distance. But here it was like dead silent. You know, you go to like the third world at two in the morning. It's dead silent, like crazy silent. You know, or you go out in the country, you know, where you're all by yourself and it's like two in the morning, three in the morning. It's dead quiet. You know, you hear crickets and, you know, coyotes and all these but, you know, you see the church here at Mary's house, packed house. And what are they doing? Praying without ceasing. So beautiful here. It's a model for the last day's church. You know, to be prayer warriors. And church, you know, we're going to have a prayer meeting, 7 p.m. When is it over? We're going to have dinner. And then, you know, we'll have breakfast. You know, and then, you know, probably have our funky breaths and everything. And But, you know, who cares? Praise be to the Lord. It's interceding, praying for pastors who are getting beaten, Christians who are getting raped, 
pastors getting their head chopped off, deacons, elders getting their heads chopped off, parishioners getting raped, murdered, burned. You know, I don't mean just burned, but like like set on fire, getting their arms chopped off, their legs chopped off. It's like, where's the church? Yeah, we're in our America bubble. But man, nighttime's the right time. We're going to be praying for these people, our brothers and sisters in harm's way. Hardcore praying, interceding, asking the Lord for, you know, deliverance. Verse 13, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. You know, this is a girl, it's a, a young girl. In some translations, it also translates as a damsel or a servant, like a servant girl or a maid. But she goes and answers, you know, she came to answer the door. She goes to the gate. Rhoda. It's so cool what happens here. In verse 14, when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. I love this. It's so cool. So remember, it's nighttime. Peter's at the gate, and he straight up, he just went through a prison break. Like, a straight up prison break. It's kind of like, it's humorous what's happening here. Like, not humorous in a, in a, like, you know, not to like gloss over what's happening here, but humorous, like, it's, I mean, you, you, you picture the like, a straight up prison break, you know, Peter's like in his like, you know, uh, stupor from sleeping, you know, kind of like, you know, just following the angel. He thinks it's a vision. He's not aware of what's happening. And then once he comes to, he realized like, oh man, you know, the Lord just rescued, the Lord delivered me. And then at the same time, you start to, you know, he comes to the door, the, the gate of Mary's house starts knocking, and then Rhoda comes to the door. Except she doesn't even answer it, you know, because she was so glad. And then it says, but ran in, instead of opening the gate, it says she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Guys, guys, it's Peter. Peter's at the door. You know, I love this so much because it gives a, another picture of Peter. A man loved by the church. But it's, it's like, you know, that's what I love so much about these godly men, like, in my life. You know, pastors that I look up to, it's like, you know, if the Lord didn't call me to be a pastor, I would, I would, I would straight up move in those general vicinities. So I could be, like, a member of their church. Be under their tutelage. Submit myself and learn from them. And be taught by them, godly men, not the not the crazy people you see on TV, not crazy doctrine that you hear sometimes. I mean, like hardcore guys. It's like, man, I love this guy so much. And you see a picture of Peter. Rhoda is just like so happy. She hears Peter's voice. She recognized Peter's voice, and she was so ecstatic. Wow, Peter's here, but she never answered the door. <laughs> In verse 15, but they said to her, you are beside yourself. Maino mai in the Greek is what that is. Maino mai, maniac, you're crazy. You know why they say beside yourself? Have you ever talked with somebody with a split personality, like they're bipolar? You know, they're straight up crazy. That's what they're saying. Like, Rhoda, you're crazy. You're beside yourself. Yet, she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Rhoda, it's his angel. Yeah, I know you're happy. I know you're glad. But, you know, Rhoda, we're trying to pray. We're trying to pray over here, Rhoda. It's his angel. You're crazy. You're beside yourself. You know what's so cool about this? 
Their prayer was already answered, except they did not know it yet. Already answered, and they didn't know it. And now when they say, you know, Rhoda, you're crazy, and she was insistent. And they say, it's his angel. They thought he died in prison. They thought he was dead. Oh, it's his angel. And it's in verse 16. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Straight up astonished. Like, oh my goodness. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. Remember, it's the nighttime. He just busted out of prison. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And so James here, there's three main James in the New Testament. There's, you know, there's uh, 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 James who was killed by Herod Agrippa at the beginning of the chapter. And then there's James the less. And they call him the less because he's younger. And then there's James, the brother of Jesus. So there's debate on who wrote the book of James. It could have been either one of these three James. There is strong indication that the writer of James, me personally, I think it's either James the less or James the brother of Jesus. It could be either of the three, but there's strong debate on you know who wrote the book of James. But you know this James that he's saying, go tell these things to James, is James the less. He says, go tell these things to James and the brethren, and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now, this is the last we're going to hear of Peter for a while. We're not going to see Peter for a little bit. And it's so cool. He just got busted out of prison. But look what's happening here. It's like, it's so beautiful. It's like, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse over there. Well, maybe I will beat a dead horse. But now do you get why I have such a beef with these, you know, 2,000 year dispensationalists? You see what it does to faith? It destroys faith. It destroys faith. A door opening on its own. You know, chains falling off hands. Being led away by 16 guards. But you know, you close your eyes of logic. You close your eyes of intellect. And you open your eyes of faith. And I'm not trying to say like, you know, like, it's not unfounded faith. I mean, keep in mind, we're reading from the Bible, you know. We're not reading, you know, Joe Schmo. We're straight up reading Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture. So look what happens here. In verse 18, then as soon as it was day, so you know, the nighttime passed, it's now daytime. There was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. Remember, uh, 16, 16 guards. And so it says here uh, in verse 19, but when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined, he scrutinized and interrogated the guards and commanded that they should be put to death, executed executed and so look what happens here and he went down from judea to caesarea and stayed there i think this is hilarious hilarious 
You say, I don't get it. What do you mean this is hilarious? Because put yourself in Herod's shoes for a moment. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't like the guy. But like all this stuff happens. He's like, man, I'm so sick of Christians. I'm so sick of Christians. I'm so sick of these people of the way. I just want to, you know what? I'm going to Caesarea. I'm out of here, you know. And he had a palace in Caesarea. It's a coastal region. You know what's so funny about this? Cornelius. <laughs> the Lord is moving in Caesarea. Cornelius and his house. We just studied that a couple weeks ago. Or last week. I get my timing is off. Last week or the week before. You see how cool this is? The Lord has all these people everywhere. So you think about the diaspora that happened when Saul was persecuting the church. Before his conversion. Before he believed in Jesus Christ. And you see the diaspora, everything spread. But no matter where Herod went, it's like, man, there's Christians here. Man, I'm out to Caesarea. I can't stand these Christians. He gets to Caesarea. And what happens there? There's Christians there. There's The Holy Spirit is moving there. And so now look in verse 20. We're going to see a little bit of Herod's politics, his political style. Which is evil, wicked, wicked, wicked guy. And so look what happens here in verse 20. You know, I have to say something too to the listeners. Um, when you hear me pause, I'm not just, you know, pausing and breathing. Well, I'm still breathing, but I have to drink the tea. It's like a special tea, like for my throat, because my throat is shot, it's destroyed. I got to like learn how to, uh, you know, speak more uh, from the diaphragm. So if you hear my voice change. You know, it's like uh, I'm a teenager. Now, if you hear my voice change, it's, uh, you know, I have to speak like from the diaphragm because my throat is just destroyed. And so um, pray, you know, and, you know, because this is so you hear me pause. I'm ta I'm sipping my tea. And so uh, look at we're going to see in verse 20, Herod and we're going to see his, his politics. It's so wicked, this guy in verse 20. It says, now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Sidon. They're, these are like a dependent people. You know, like, um, how do I put this? Like, say, okay, look at politics today. Say we have a governor. I mean, we do have a governor, but say the governor is the, the one who's, like, one person is divvying out uh, unemployment checks. One man is divvying out these unemployment checks. He's divvying out food stamps. He's divvying out, you know, Medicaid programs. He's divvying out everything. And what are the people of, I don't know, Amboy? You know, what are the people of um, uh, Centralia? You know, say the towns of Centralia and Amboy, they come together and they like say, Hey, governor, you know, we need more food. And so these were a politically dependent people, Tyre and Sidon. And so it says, But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide. So this Blastus guy, it translates that he was his chamberlain of Herod. Now chamberlain, you know, the, the role of the chamberlain, they would they would uh, um, arrange, they, they, sleeping arrangements. Like where is Herod going to lay his head tonight? Is he going to lay his head in... 
you know, in somewhere in Judea? Is he going to be in Caesarea? Is he going to go elsewhere? You know, not to get graphic or anything, but this the sleeping arrangements would often include partners, you know? So it's like, you know, this is your sleeping arrangements and, you know, person one, person two, you know? So I don't want to get graphic, but that was the nature of a Chamberlain, especially for Herod. Herod, the whole Herod family is wicked. I mean, look at, look at the other Herod, you know, who had this whorish daughter dancing for him, you know, instead of saying, hey, you know, cut it out, put some clothes on, get out of my face, he's, he likes it, you know, and chopped off uh, John the Baptist's head, has his head removed, how beautiful, beautiful, I mean, John the Baptist, he's, I love him so much, I can't tell you how much, there's certain people that I just, like a top five, he's like, whew, he's up there, top three, He's up there. That top five. I have so many. I have like a top hundred. I have a lot. So look what happens. This is Blastus. You know, he's the personal aide, the Chamberlain. He arranged the sleeping arrangements for Herod, you know, which included sleeping partners. And so it says, uh, they so they made Blastus their friend. So the people of Tyre and Sidon, they're trying to curry favor and by befriending Blastus, you know, kind of like the lobbyists. You know, like, for example, like, you know, say you have uh, Centralia and uh, Amboy, you know, they're, they, the, the governor divvies out the, you know, the foods, all the social programs, and food stamps, everything, you know. So Centralia and uh, Amboy, they get together and they talk to the lieutenant governor. Say the lieutenant governor is like a chamberlain. And so they talk to the lieutenant governor. They become really, really good friends. And they're trying to curry favor with the governor. So politically speaking, that's what's happening here. It says they asked for peace. Remember, these guys were at depend dependent cities, Tyre and Sidon. It's like, you know, from Herod's perspective, it's like, man, all I do is give you guys money. All I do is give you guys food. And so it says they, they asked for peace. Because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So, on a timeline, there's an overlap of Herod Agrippa I and Claudius Caesar. You say, what are you bringing up Caesar for? Well, do you remember in a previous chapter what we read about a famine? There was a famine in chapter 11, verse 28. Then one of them named Abagus or Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Where this overlap of time, it's very interesting when you read history and what's happening. This this uh, 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 famine, and you know what's so cool about it is that the church had advanced warning. The Holy Spirit, you know, gave provisions. So he gave provisions, the Holy Spirit gave provisions by the prophecy of Agabus. And then the church responded and says, man, you know what? we got to provide food for the, the poor churches in Jerusalem. So they pooled their resources and says, here, you know what? Let's help them. You see how cool this is? How the Bible, you start to read things and it's like, wow, this is so cool. Because not only does it line up, but it teaches us. To be very, very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is directing. Just like the Holy Spirit did. Just like the Lord is doing in the Old Testament. You know, the Lord never changes. 
That's why I get these people who say the 2,000-year dispensationalists. When the Bible says the Lord never changes, why have they changed him? You know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You know, I, the Lord, never change. And then all of a sudden, these people say, oh, the Lord changed. That was for that dispensation. Where? Where do you get that from? Not only that, where do you get the authority to even say that, to even make such a suggestion when the Lord never changes? And you're saying he's changed. You see? In verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel. He's crazy. The Herod family is crazy. Arrayed in royal apparel. Remember how they were mocking the uh, uh, um, um, Herod um, Antipas? How he was mocking Jesus Christ and kind of like... I mean, when we did our study, when Jesus Christ was before Pontius Pilate, and then he was sent to Herod because of the jurisdiction, and Herod says, no, you know, this is a Roman issue. This is a, a issue with the Jews. And so you have to go to Pilate where he's kind of like oversees all that. But when he was with uh, Herod, he just mocked him, you know, and they made fun of him. And, you know, he wanted Jesus Christ to perform tricks for him. You know, like do a little magic trick. Show me this. It's a wicked family. Look at the lineage, what they passed on to the next generation. You know, you see these people, they, they pass on wickedness to the next generation. Don't be like that. Pass on righteousness, pass on Jesus Christ to the next generation. So in verse 21, So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them, a public address to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And you know what's so disgusting about this? Herod liked it. He liked it. The voice of a God. The people, you know, Tyre and Sidon, they were they were getting the, uh, like, you know, the food stamps. You know, they were on public assistance. And so they're saying, yes, you are God. You are God. You know, it's kind of interesting in the absence of God in today's culture. You know, God has been kicked out of the marketplace. So you know who's God to a lot of people? Government. Government. Instead of seeking the face of the Lord, they seek the face of the governor. They seek the face of the mayor. They seek the face of the president. They seek the face of all these candidates who promise them whatever they want. Man pleasers. People who they can sway. These politicians. Yeah, I'll give you food stamps. I'll give you free college. I'll give you free food. I'll give you free health care. I'll give you free this. And what did the people say? The voice of a God and not of a man. Remember, God has been kicked out of the marketplace in today's culture. So who has become God? The hand that feeds, the hand that provides. I was listening to some political debate a couple months ago. And this lady was like, yeah, the American people, they want to hear how we're going to put food on the table. And I'm like, what in the world? I don't need anybody to put food on my table. I don't want anybody to put food on my table. If I cry out to person, if I cry out to somebody, I'm going to cry out to Jesus Christ. But he has enabled me. I can go by the sweat of my brow. I can go flip burgers at McDonald's. You know, I can go, you know, do whatever. I don't need a politician to put food on my table. You know, the Lord has enabled 
me, he has enabled you with hands that can work, a mind that can think, feet that can walk. And then it's like, man, you know, you, re- you pray out to him, you cry out to him. Lord, I need help. Give me direction. Where do I go? I, I, wanna, I don't need to work. You cry out to him. But people now, they cry out to government. Oh, feed me. I need food. Oh, feed me. I need this. Oh, I need health care. I need this for my operation. And oh, by the way, I need my health care to include abortion so I can murder my baby. You see? I don't want to, you know, my body, my choice, you know. If I want to go have sex, I'll go have sex. If I get pregnant, I'm going to abort the baby. And I want a politician that's going to give me my abortion. So, yeah, let's vote for this person. Where is the Lord? Where is the Lord in their lives? You see, remember, it's righteousness that exalts a nation. Don't get me wrong. I'm a patriot. I mean, I hate saying that because I don't need to say it to convince anybody. I mean, you, you cut my heart open. It's red, white, and blue. But it's under the banner of Jesus Christ. He is first. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He must be preeminent in your life, in my life. Because it's like we look to government. It's crazy. You know, they always say, don't bite the hand that feeds you. What happens when when government feeds you? What happens? All these people, it trips me out. They're saying, you know, let's protest against government. But these are also the people that are begging for their stimulus checks. People that are begging for their food stamps. People that are begging for their tax credits. It's like, yeah, give me this. People that are begging for free, you know, government-sponsored education. You know, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but it's very interesting what the people are saying here. Herod's been giving them food. And what do they say to him? The voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod likes it. Because look what happens here in verse 23. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Patasso. Patasso. Same same thing that happened with Peter in jail, in prison. It's to strike gently or fatally. The angel of the Lord struck him. Because he did not give glory to God. And he was given and he was eaten by worms and died. You know, this worms, how it translates is that he was diseased with maggots. Myiasis. Myiasis. It's a disease. You know, you go like people go on vacation. Say, oh yeah, I'm gonna go on vacation. I'm gonna go on a safari. They go on a safari, they go to Africa. You know, they meet a local tribe. The local tribe says, yeah, you know, we kill this animal, eat this animal. And you see these people, you know, they're the, the millennials. They're like, oh, yes, you know, I want to fit in with this culture. So, yeah, I'm going to eat this. They start eating. But what they don't realize, they're eating maggots. They've got they, like, you know, little parasites in those meats. And they're eating all these things. And they come back to America. They start getting sick. And then all of a sudden they're dead. You know why? Because the maggots are still alive and they're eating them from the inside out, eating the guts, eating all their intestines. And they're like, man, you know, oh, I got a little pain, but it's okay. And then they have pain the next day. And the next day they're dead. 
It's myiasis. And he was eaten by worms and died. So look what happens here in chapter 12. Herod killed James and almost Peter. And now look, the guards are dead and now Herod is dead. That's why our pastor in California, he always used to tell us, you know, the Lord is cleaner than the mafia. He always used to say that. And I would laugh so hard, like, what do you mean cleaner than the mafia? But then, like, you read certain passages in Scripture, like, man, this is a pretty clean hit. You see what happens here? Look straight up. Where You know, like Jesus Christ says, women, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? Look what, it, look what happened here. The guards are dead. Herod's dead. And you see, the Lord is cleaner than the mafia. It's like, man, that was like no, no problems with that job right there. You see how the Lord works? It's so cool how the Lord works. He protects his people. He protects his children. You say like, well, what do you mean? James wasn't protected. Well, beautiful in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. You know why? Because he wants to be with you. It's this earth suit that's separating us. It's like, you know, he can be with us in our hearts, but like straight up like in paradise with him, it's a different ballgame. And look at verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. You know, it's going to be the same in the last days. The church will take casualties, like straight up death. I and mean, some of the death will be gruesome. But the harvest is still plentiful. The harvest is still plentiful. Never, ever, ever forget that. In verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. Some translations say to Jerusalem. But in the next chapter, you're going to see they're in Antioch. So it might be that they, you know, they, they uh, returned to Jerusalem. Or it might be that they returned from Jerusalem. But the next chapter, chapter, they're in Antioch. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John whose surname was Mark. This is John Mark. You know, they were at, Peter was at his mom's house, you know, when he came and knocked on the door and Rhoda answered. You know, and it's so beautiful what is happening here. And the word of God grew and multiplied. And it's still growing. There's still opposition. And the church is on defense. And the church goes on offense. You see, it's straight up warfare. It's like battlefield. The book of Acts, it's like straight up war, combat, hand to hand. And I love it. It's so beautiful. So we're going to end our study here and pick up next week, Lord willing, in chapter 13. Love you guys. God bless you.